This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Human trafficking is modern-day slavery and involves the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain some type of labor. Every year, millions of men, women, and children are trafficked in countries around the world, including the United States. It is estimated that human trafficking generates many billions of dollars of profit per year, second only to drug trafficking as the most profitable form of transnational crime. Recent human trafficking cases illustrate common indicators, as well as efforts by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, DHS, and its blue campaign to protect victims and bring the perpetrators to justice. What is the mission of DHS's blue campaign? How are we combating human trafficking? And what are the benefits of a victim-centered approach to the combating of human trafficking? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Michael Mick McEwen. Executive Director of the DHS Blue Campaign. Also joining me from IBM is Don Fenhagen. Mick, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Don, always. Great to be here. So, Mick, would you provide us with an overview of the history and mission of the Blue Campaign? Um, When was it created and how has the mission evolved to date? Sure. So the mission was created in 2010, um, and the Blue Campaign originally was housed in the uh, you know, the USCIS, which is okay. a Citizen Immigration Service, a budsman's office. And then it moved um, to uh, headquarters and became a campaign for the secretary to, to kind of oversee and look. I'm appointed by the secretary, mm-hmm. and uh, we're really excited because uh, just this January, uh, the president uh, signed the Blue Campaign Authorization Act. So we are now uh, authorized and codified, and it's a very big deal. You know, this town's very hard to get the House <laughs> and the Senate to agree on something and then the president to sign it. So it was a really, it was a fa- fascinating uh, experience to have, and it was great to see, um, to be there for the signing. And we're really thankful for Chairman McCall and, um, Chair- and uh, Chairman Johnson to help get it through. It's made it a lot to us. So what exactly does the campaign What's its mission and what what's the significance of Blue, the, the name of the campaign? Oh, sure. So we are the unified voice for DHS and human trafficking. And the way I like to talk about it is that, you know, look at DHS as General Motors, right? Uh-huh. We have 22 components or 17 brands, however you want to look at it. And we're able to be that like hub for all the spokes okay. as we work across it. And Blue Campaign is two things. It's once it's a it's a hat tip to law enforcement because we are the large, okay. you know, that thin blue line that protects all sure. of us. And then the other is, is that blue is also kind of become the color for human trafficking worldwide. So there's variations of the blue campaign as a whole. Um, 
across the world. And uh, I think that's kind of where we get the blue campaign. And it also keeps us into a an idea where our customers are, you know, not only law enforcement to train them on the issue, but also for the general public so they can understand the indicators of what might be happening in their town and their community. So you don't sit in a component, a DHS component. You you were in the uh, the office of the secretary. Yeah, we're right, we're in the offices of partnership and engagement in the oh, headquarters, okay. and um, that's and we're really well placed there because I think that we're able to leverage not only being so close to the front office, but also able to leverage the idea that we're out in front of the community and our different stakeholders to put this issue in front of them. Now, money isn't every but you mentioned getting agreement up in the hill is, is, is fascinating and, yes. and complicated. What kind of budget are you looking at? We, well, we'll see what appropriations decides to be worthy. Um, <laughs> usually we have to do a pass the hat type of thing at the end of the year, and you know, we're kind of working our way out of it, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. So, Mick, can you talk a little bit about your responsibilities as the executive director of the Blue Campaign and, and maybe a little bit about you know, with all the, all the components of DHS, kind of how you fit in and interact with some of the component agencies. Well, yeah, sure. So pretty much I'm supposed to help give strategy and vision to the campaign and help execute um, the different things that we're trying to accomplish at a given time. My focus since I've taken over the executive directorship has to be, uh, you know, focusing on partnership, social media, and just really making this what it's supposed to be, an education awareness program that offers training. Um, I deal with uh, ICE and uh, Immigration Custom Enforcement, uh, Custom and Border Protection, uh, are, are some of our big clients that we, that we like to deal with. Um, when we're dealing with them, we want to take what they're telling us and making sure that it's getting out to the rest of uh, our, our stakeholders. So uh, operators know how to operate, and I always and I want to make sure that that's always kind of one of the things that when you're offering help or guidance, you know, you're also, in my opinion, you need to listen first. And that's one of the things that we do is we go on we went on a listening tour of DHS for what what can we do what can Blue do for you pretty much kind of right. to stealing a line from UPS and what is their what is their um, and what is their mission? So we've been really able to, I think, kind of amplify some of their needs operationally. And we're also able to um, deal with NGOs and the other groups that we talk to in a way to let them know where, you know, ICE or CBP is coming from. Um, so given that you have a you know, department-wide sort of engagement with mm-hmm. all the components, and, and, and I, I believe outside international partners and what happened, we'll talk about partnerships. You know, it sounds like there, you, you, you can run across a lot of challenges. Mm-hmm. So if you could, like, maybe tell us what are some of the key challenges you've faced and how have you sought to address those things? Well, I think the first challenge is, is that, you know, sometimes when you hit a roadblock, uh, I don't even like to call them roadblocks. I like to call them road signs. You know, so instead of just being blocked, I just get off the exit, you know. And, you know, we have to get to yes. Whatever that yes is, tell me how to get there. And um, I think that when you give people that type of framework to work with, that you get a little bit more of a response. Um, and I know that when you're in that government space, it's sometimes it's hard to kind of change that mindset. But I, I think that that's been a huge help for us is to just kind of be like, hey, how do I get to where I'm trying to go? What way would you take? That's the way I'll follow. And I think when you empower people to help make those decisions, all of a sudden things start to, you know, kind of clear up and move on. Mm-hmm. Any other challenges in terms of, you know, support or getting, I don't know, just um, working within the bureaucracy of Washington? I mean, the bureaucracy of Washington has been so welcoming oh, to this okay. issue. I mean, this is a passion project that do- doesn't know yeah. partisanship. It doesn't know any, but everyone wants to help and really just they want to work together. And um, it, it's, you know, 
so refreshing mm-hmm. to see our government and to see the the different agencies working so hard. There's so many unsung heroes in this space that don't have the opportunity to um, really get their chance, but they come in every day, do a job that people might not even know that they're doing, and they are making a difference. And one of the things that I tried to do with our team at Blue Campaign is to move the numbers on the awareness aspect of human trafficking and to like shed light on all the great work that other agencies are doing, like specifically like, you know, the State Department. And then we had a great meeting with Canada and Mexico where there's a whole financial crime section to this and other groups are kind of working with it as well. well that's that's great. And I mean, yeah, I think this is really, you know, one of DHS's best kept secrets, which hopefully won't be a secret for long, right? So, uh, you know, I guess, you know, this is such an important mission, not only to to the United States and to DHS, but, you know, to the world and, you know, to everybody, all the citizens around the world. What you guys are doing is really important. I mean, what what surprised you the most since you've you've taken this role? I think what's got me the most was the idea that, you know, modern day slavery exists, Mm -hmm. you know, when you kind of look at it that way. And when people say phrases like that, and then you actually start to dive down a little bit into it, you know, there's, there's some horrific things that are happening, not only here, but around the world. And it's just so against the American way, you know, and it's, so it's very, it's been, that part has been really eye-opening for me as we kind of get into this and to just connect with um, everything we do with the Blue Campaign has input from survivors so that when you are creating something, we have a victim center approach and I think the entire government has a victim center approach, you know, and it's one of those things where when you're dealing with, you know, a, I don't deal with victims. I, by the time that I get a chance to catch with them, it's they're, they're survivors. You know, they're past, you know, a certain point as, as much as you, you can be and they're willing to now at least work with us and talk with us and give us feedback and input. And you sit and you, you spend some time with these people and it, it's, it, it makes... It defines what public service should be. And I think that's kind of what um, – it's been the most rewarding thing, like, you know, to say that, okay, like I'm taking their input. It's directly affecting a product that we're creating and we're making sure it's getting to the hands of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. We did a great PSA that um, was just released and has – just shot out of the gate. And I think that when you're doing something like this, it's so important to have that authentic narrative. And we were able to bring a survivor on set with us. And it was funny, like, you know, when you make statements in your management world and, you know, the corporate world, you know, the door doesn't lock for the inside. It did for her. Yeah. The door locked from the inside for her. Yeah. And that's just mind-blowing in a way. And so we actually had to take the lock off the door and turn it inside out because that was one of the things that she said. is like, no, there's no way you would just open that door. That door would lock and he would have that keychain around his neck. And, you know, just to be into that space, her input was so invaluable. And I think that's also one of the reasons why the PSA has been so successful. I mean, what you're doing is so unique and, uh, you know, interesting. And, you know, the evolution of this this campaign is is fascinating. Can you can you uh, kind of describe your career path for our listeners? Like, how did you get here? How did this come to come about? What, what, what brought you here? So I'm a long way from Lindsay Street, Northeast Philadelphia. <laughs> and, you know, uh, pretty much um, I, I, we were uh, 
our my family was in Philadelphia, and there just doesn't seem to be opportunities for you know that when you hit that career mid level, and DC just seemed to have opportunities. So we you know we sold our worldly possessions, packed the car, and came on down and gave it a go. And you know I got here, and the you know first job I had was pretty much like a a glorified you know file clerk slash consultant, and eventually led me here. And you know just kind of hard work and perseverance pays off. Did you spend time at the hill up at the hill? No, I didn't. Um, the hill engagements we've been able to do have been absolutely phenomenal. But no, I I was um I'm, like I said like I'm from Philadelphia, right? Yeah. So we're just we have a certain type of mentality where we're 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 not the most subtle people. And we're just going to kind of keep going for the one direction we wanted to go. And um, I had the opportunity to, to to be identified as someone who's just kind of like going to get the job done. And you know, Mick, given your background, given the campaign you're leading, how important is as Don has mentioned uh, a yeoman's effort in getting this both topic out there and how to fix it, so to speak? What makes an effective leader? And perhaps you could you know illustrate some of the folks who have influenced your leadership style. Okay. Well, sure. So the the biggest person who's affected my leadership style, and this is kind of cliche, is my mother. You know, um, my uh, my mother empowered me at a young age to kind of make my own decisions and then also taught me at a young age the importance of living with those decisions that I made. <laughs> um, so that was that's that's kind of what I've tried to do as a leader is to empower the staff to be able to make their own decisions and but also to give them top cover when things don't necessarily work out that way. So, um you know, that was really a really important lesson for me to learn as a leader. Uh, one, Just a super quick story on this. I had an employee that I was begging to just kind of lean into the work and take a chance. And um, she finally did lean in. She finally took the chance. And it absolutely exploded. And it in a, in, in a pretty negative way. I hopped in. And I was just like, you're okay. Yeah, you're okay. You tried. You did what I asked. It's not working out. I will fix it. Don't worry about it. I want you to try again. I know, I know there's this culture now to celebrate failure and all that type of stuff. But for me, it was more of just like she didn't fail. She did what I asked her to do. Yeah. I'm the one who messed up. Right. So I'll take the heat for it. And then the next time she leaned in, she had a huge win. It really went her way. And I let her celebrate it because that's what you're supposed to do. You know? What is human trafficking? We will ask Mick McEwen, executive director of the DHS Blue Campaign, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. How is the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, getting back to basic? What are EPA's strategic priorities? And how is EPA changing the way it does business? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and more with Henry Darwin, Assistant Deputy Administrator and Chief of Operations at EPA. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Mick McEwen, Executive Director of the DHS Blue Campaign. 
My co-host today from IBM is Don Fenhagen. So, um, you know, Mick, before we delve into your specific vision and priorities for the campaign, uh, would you describe for us what is human trafficking? So human trafficking is the use of force, fraud, or coercion to uh, use someone against their will or for illicit purposes or criminal purposes. And I think that um, one of the issues in human trafficking um, that we like to really make sure that people don't get mixed up with this with the idea of human smuggling. Yes, that's a good distinction. Yeah. So we don't want to conflate those two issues because smuggling, you know, is the transportation of people across across a border and you pay for, you, you know, you, you pay the fee or whatever it is that you may do. But trafficking, you don't necessarily have to move. The idea of trafficking, you could actually just, we have cases where kids went, woke up in their parents' home and went home to their parents' home but were trafficked during the those eight hours in between. But your smuggler... Mm-hmm. can become your trafficker. So the idea is with that, and I see your eyes kind of like, let me just wrap my head around this. You can pay the fee, end up where you're supposed to end up, and then all of a sudden find out you're coercing you and saying, oh, you actually owe us some more money. You have to work it off, and then you never have anything. And does that go into sort of the myths and misconceptions of human trafficking? What are some of those things that we well, give so people a better understanding? It's a tough space to be in because I don't really trust any of the data we have because okay. it's a lot of it's anecdotal. Um, there are these myths and, um, you know, especially in a town like D.C., everything's metrics-based, right? Yep. And everything's data-based. And, you know, we have groups out there that are really trying to wrap their hands around it and do the best that they can. But we do know there is an uptick in not only awareness, but there's an uptick in uh, criminal prosecutions and going after these types of crimes and identifying these crimes. But the thing is, is if you think about it, we weren't able to get Al Capone on murder. We got him on tax evasion. Yeah. So you don't really know what prosecution is going to do to get someone behind bars. You know, the idea of the human trafficking case is really wonderful for them to type of pursue, but they might have a, a different type of case to pursue that would be a sturdier yeah, conviction. Stronger, stronger yeah. way of getting them. Yeah. So, gosh, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to wrap your head around some of those some of those mm-hmm. concepts, but. So, so what are some of the, the key indicators of human trafficking? How do, you, how do you go about it identifying a potential victim of human trafficking? You know, kind of related to the see something, say something campaign. Right. How, do, how do we – So this is what I like to do. I like to – if you can go to um, our website and our Twitter and Facebook accounts, um, www.dhs.gov slash blue campaign. But for me, the very, very first indicator is the gut check. What doesn't feel? What doesn't feel right? You know, um, what what do, something is out of place? Kind of like that old Sesame Street thing. Which one of these things doesn't belong? And I think that's the first one. And the other thing that I always like to point out is, and it seems like an odd one, but it, it's the identification. Like, do do these people have access to their identification? When you see someone who you know is going to someone else, whether it's in a pharmacy or the airport or anything, and asking for their driver's license, who in their right mind? would not have access to their driver's license or their passport or something like that. It's one thing to give for the 12-year-old to give it to their mother. But other than that type of scenario, why do you have it? Um, or if someone's speaking for the group and uh, they don't have a coherent story or a story that makes sense. But what we like to kind of talk about, too, is that, you know, when you're seeing this, it, one of the things is, is that their scenarios are always unique and different. And when you keep your eyes out for it, it's going to be that time when just something doesn't feel right. You know your community better than anyone else. You know what's right or what's wrong on your block. And if there's just a, a large number of people coming in and out that haven't happened before, that's one of those types of things that can kind of raise that flag. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with the context that you just provided, which was great about, about the topic and, and some of the indicators, some of the myths and misconceptions of human trafficking, you know, would you outline your strategic vision and key priorities for the campaign over the next year or so. Um, Do you have some key priorities you could briefly kind of walk us through? 
Sure. So for me, the most important thing is partnerships. And I think that, you know, we've been able to kind of move our way into social media um, and use it extensively uh, over the last few months. And when you talk about social media in the government space, I find that everyone says, well, it just needs to go viral. And that's just not going to happen. (laughs) Like, you're just not going to have something go viral. First off, it's 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 government. And, you know, second off, it's like we're, we're not really necessarily producing things that, um, yeah, we're we're, we're not doing the water bucket challenge, you know? Um, So there's going to be a different type of uh, thought process here with that. But that's where partnerships are key. And instead of going viral in the traditional sense that it's just an overnight sensation, I kind of like to look at it as like, you know, we were that overnight success band with 10 years in the making. (laughs) That's where the partnerships come in. We've had some great partnerships with the Blue Campaign. I want to kind of highlight two of those partnerships. One is the Allied Universal, and they're a security firm that uh, is one of the larger private security firms across the country. Uh, these are the, the security guys that are uh, at the malls and the, the venues for um, sporting events. And they're implementing training for their groups because these are the people who are going to see it first right. and they need to know how to call in that tip to law enforcement, you know. And so then the other, uh, we have other hotel associations who are working with their back-of-the-house staff to kind of see, you know, you know, hey, what are some tips and what are some, you know, indicators that they need to look for as back of the house, whether it's, you know, housekeeping or the or the concierge or whatever of, you know, what this is. So, I mean, the private sector is totally buying into this concept and trying to help eradicate it. But when we're doing this, they're also helping us on the social front. So that's really, you know, is helpful to get those retweets or likes or whatever else, yeah. shares and things of that nature to kind of help. I'm going to have to toot our hat. We did uh, January 11th was National Wear Blue Day. Mm-hmm. And last year we had around 4 million impressions for Wear Blue Day. This year we had something like 44 million. Wow. We were able to get um, news stations across the country. Uh, the mayor of Los Angeles lit uh, their city hall blue. Um, we had people from all different sides of the aisle and all different walks of life wearing blue and wear blue day. Um, and that was a really that was really awesome experience for me and a chance to kind of see something go viral. We were able to trend on Twitter and, you know, do something. But that was also due to those partnerships, due to working with, you know, the different outlets and due to working with, you know, these city and state governments as well. You know, earlier you mentioned a victim-centered approach. I, I, w- I was hoping you could actually explain to us what exactly that is. What are some of the benefits of using such an approach? And, you know, and honestly, is there any drawbacks to using this approach in combating human trafficking? There's no drawbacks in my mind. Now, obviously, um, I'm not a law enforcement agent or officer. So, the, I mean, and I don't, every law enforcement officer I've spoken to has is very proud of the victim center approach. The basic idea is, is that, you know, this approach focuses in on the victim as that being the priority. So that we're, so even though that they're, you know, there's someone else who's committed the crime, we're going to make sure that this person is safe they're protected, they're taken care of. And whether they are, you know, need to, you know, if they're far from home or if not from this country, whether we can help them set them up here, send them back to their family, or, you know, just make sure that they get safe. And I think that when you're dealing with something like that, when you know that's the ultimate goal is your job, as difficult as the job might be, I think it makes it just a little bit more palatable Mm -hmm. to kind of just know that, hey, this is what my ultimate goal is. So you talked about a little bit about training with uh, the hotels and the security groups and things like that. I know you also offer training to law enforcement and other types to increase detection and investigation of human trafficking. Can you tell us more about the types of training you all offer? Yeah, so our federal law enforcement training center, known as FLETSI, um, they have a, a great staff there. And uh, there's so many unsung heroes within 
DHS who work on this stuff. And one of them is a guy by the name of Scott Santoro, who single-handedly took this and really has made this one of his big options to really help uh, illustrate it. And if you have a chance to go on the Blue Campaign's Facebook page, you'll see Scott on our Facebook Live um, from earlier this year. He gives some great training. He's a former prosecutor. And then he came to DHS. And, you know, when you have someone from that landscape. They can speak to law enforcement. They can speak to, you know, uh, prosecuting attorneys or district attorneys. And he just really brings a, a, a great amount of knowledge and passion, which is something you'll see throughout to the topic. And I really think that with without him, I don't know where we would be without his ability to kind of connect to that audience and show us what they need to know and how they need to hear it. So along those lines, I know Fletzi handles federal, but they also do state and locals and tribal and things like that. What, what else do you guys do with local law enforcement to combat human trafficking? Are there grants, funding available to help local law enforcement? What, what goes I mean, on there? DHS itself, I, I know, has some some options and some tools. A blue campaign does not. Okay. Uh, we're, we're just the awareness. You don't extend can't... grants or anything? No, just... we don't really get involved in any of that. For our purposes, it's just we offer this free training um, and we try and work with uh, law enforcement as best we can. Uh, we were able to go up to Anchorage in August of wow. 17 and deal with the state troopers and the Anchorage police and also working with their version of Health and Human Services to make sure that everyone kind of got a, got an issue with it. Because this, as from a tribal standpoint and from a, a, a city standpoint, that's both po- you know vulnerable populations that they need to work with. You know, uh, Mick, as you said with Don, you know, along with education and raising awareness, I was wondering if a few folks, um, does the campaign pursue efforts around developing preventative strategies? In other words, um, getting out in front of maybe a potential victimization happening. One of the issues that we have to do is really have to identify with empirical evidence, not anecdotal evidence, what, what's this going to be and where is this going to be? One of the things that I think is we're, we're studying or looking into is, you know, is there an uptick in human trafficking due to natural disasters? You know, with being hit by hurricanes, Harvey, Irma, and Maria like we were, like, you know, is there something going on there? We have to kind of look into it and study it and, you know, sorry for the pun, but we had a perfect storm, you know, and, you know, is that is that an option? I know that one of the other anecdotal stories is, oh, we see an uptick on um, during, you know, the Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah, but how do we really prove that? And, you know, so, I mean, it's kind of trying to figure that out. And I I think that you'll see in the next three to five years um, some studies coming out and, you know, of where we should be doing more focus. Now, where would, and I know it's, you you got three or five years from now, where would the campaign in terms of, so that would be, Academic or law enforcement research, and I would think more academic. I mean, would you be, you know, again, partnership? Would you mm-hmm. be involved? Do you envision the campaign working with academics to to come up with the, the kind of evidence that you need to better inform your decisions? I think that um, we would offer ourselves if academics needed us okay. um, as a resource and help point them in the right direction. Um, but as far as getting involved in that, I don't like to tell operators how to operate, and I. Definitely want to tell academics how to write. How are we combating human trafficking? We will ask Mick McEwen, executive director of the DHS Blue Campaign, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report 
by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Nick McEwen, Executive Director of the DHS Blue Campaign. My co-host today from IBM is Don Fenhagen. Nick, you talked about uh, the Wear Blue Day and the, the success you had this past year. Can you tell us a little bit more about that day and how much, you know, you know, kind of what you learned uh, about that day and what you think is going to happen in the future to kind of enhance the effectiveness and continue making the progress that you made already? Yeah, sure. So Wear Blue Day was uh, someone else's idea. Uh, <laughs> uh, so our one of the people who work on the campaign, Jen Voss, came up with the idea in 2017, and she pretty much tried to work it out with a small group of people and get it to connect. And she did great. And then when I came on board in the campaign, she talked to us about it again. And I got so excited over the idea because it's just, it's a no-brainer. It's a slam dunk, right? What a great way to raise awareness. And it's something easy, right? Just just to yeah. wear, wear blue. You know, she really, you know, helped with, with the team to get it together. And we really amplified it this year. And um, different groups and media outlets picked up on it. And one anchor realized that the morning show and the evening show were already doing it, and he didn't have any blue on, so he had to stop at, <laughs> at Brooks Brothers and get it. And get, and, yeah, it cost him about $150 for a new tie and a handkerchief. You know, But, yeah, it really worked out um, for us. And the basic idea is it's a great way to raise awareness, and it was so much fun to kind of watch it unfold. Um, we're in Las Vegas to issue a partnership with the governor of Nevada, Brian Sandoval, and – launched, but we also did a great launch with the DMV out there, the Department of Voter Vehicles. And, you know, in my previous government world, I was in parking, and I thought only people who were like like less than parking was the Department of Motor Vehicles. Uh, They were able to do a great thing because everyone gets touched by the Department of Motor Vehicles. You have to go there at least, what, once a year? Yeah, they're going to be there. But one of the big indicators of human trafficking is the use of the identification. So now they're getting trained, and this just shows the leadership um, of Terry Albertson from the DMV and Governor Sandoval to really help make this connection. And we were able to really go on that partnership, and that also helped, you know, amplify Blue Day, and we were able to really make something happen, and I'm really excited to see what we do next year. You know, I'm not, just to follow on that, you know, what made you pick um, Nevada, Vegas area to do that? And, and do you work with the DMV? Are you doing it with other DMVs? We're working with other DMVs. Okay. So one of the other things that I found out is that there's an association of DMVs. Um, so it's the American Association of Motor Vehicle Administrators. And they're going to try and we're going to be going out to their um, conference in Montana sometime in July to kind of explain what we've been doing with Nevada. And I know that once we announced the partnership, uh, Maryland kind of wanted to come on board and a couple mm-hmm. other states. And when we picked Nevada, just because Nevada, a list was produced, and I can't tell you who produced the list because I don't, I don't recall, that they were finishing towards the, the bottom. And um, 
I think that you're seeing across government is that when there's a there's a weak spot, they want to kind of just put it out in front. Here's our problem. We got to go try and fix it. And that's what then that's why. And so we just hopped right on the opportunity. Well, the Wear Blue campaign really relied, as you said earlier, uh, I believe, uh, on the social media platforms. And where I want to go is could you tell us more about your efforts to leverage social media platforms to raise awareness? And I know you do in Facebook Live uh, mm-hmm. efforts. What else are you doing? And maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the Facebook stuff. So, yeah, we're. Um, we're just doing a trying a Twitter town hall. Um, it was a it was a concept that I think came out a couple of years ago, and we're kind of just trying to put a new spin on it. We're going to be doing that when we do these uh, events. We want to do them industry specific, so we'll be working with the American Hotel Lodging Association and the Asian American Hotel Owners Association, and those groups will be helping us. Um, you know, moderate and kind of dealing with what they're doing in this space as well. I, I think that when you're talking about human trafficking as a whole, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. But when you when you segment, you know, put it into segments, whether it's through um, travel or hotels, I think that that's kind of makes it a little bit more interesting and a little bit easier to uh, comprehend so that you can see where we're going. Yeah, and you've talked about, you know, some of your industry partnerships and collaboration already. But uh, what other, you know, industries, you know, looking towards the future, are you, are you looking to target? What do you need help with, you know, and terms of getting out to these other industries and, you know, maybe some of the challenges you've seen in building these partnerships, if any. One of the things that we're, we're working on is, you know, uh, we have a student toolkit. So we're going to be working with, you know, university students and, um, you know, eventually, you know, that we want to get kind of break into the space too, as well as to make more uh, deeper inroads into the transportation industry as a whole. Um, we have some great partnerships there, but I think like, one of the things is is that you can't be everything to everyone. So like our focus is going to be, like I said before, that that, that mile mile deep, not necessarily a mile wide. And uh, challenges for us, you know, we're a smaller staff. You know, there's limited abilities to get places and kind of get the message out there. I'm going to be focusing in on uh, the transportation industry, the hospitality industry. Uh, we'll be focusing in on um, getting the message out here to these college students because they're going to be going to all the different industries. Mm-hmm. So for them to kind of get an opportunity to you know be, be open to the idea in a way that's effective and working with law enforcement, I think is really important. And, you know, the, the state and local piece, you know, you've, you've made some good progress with Nevada and it sounds like Maryland's starting to get interested in some other folks. But, uh, you know, who do you who do you target talking to outside the DMV and the, and the state and local governments? And, you know, once you talk to them, you know, what would you say or, you know, for those folks that are listening on, on what these agencies can do to mitigate their um, chances or reducing the cases of trafficking in their states? I think there's first what happens to a lot of the people we get calls from is that something happens in their community. Oh, and, it's you know, it's a, that's, yeah, it's, it's definitely a trigger. And um, we had one case where a mayor called our office due to the fact that, uh, you know, there was a uh, shipping container that, of uh, smuggling victims who, you know, perished just due to being left behind there. And they weren't, the door was never opened and they all, they all right. died. And we had to explain, hey, like, you know, this is, this, this is smuggling. This isn't trafficking. Here we are to help. And I think that that kind of helps leads to partnerships. And once you go into a, like a city um, or get into like that state, everybody wants to kind of get involved. And get, and get touched. And one of the other things that's been very helpful for us is um, just the overall support on the Hill. And so you have um, the different members who bring it back to their districts and bring it back to the, the you know, the, the big city mayors and, and things of that nature. And I th- so we've been really lucky and fortunate for that. That's good. And hopefully, hopefully when they see you guys come in, you know, and see the, you know, the social media and everything else from it, maybe people would go, you know, a different direction, hopefully. I, yeah, that's the like, that's the overall hope, and you know this has been kind of where we've been, you know, headed. I think that um, 
it's one of the few opportunities you have where everyone comes with an open heart and open mind on how to do something better. You know, Mick, given your perspective, mm-hmm. I'm trying to understand what has changed in terms of tools and tactics over the years to more successfully combat human trafficking. And where I want to really emphasize this, has technological advances, you know, assisted the efforts in, in combating uh, human trafficking? Or has it has exacerbated some of the efforts? I think there is like a double-edged sword to it. I mean, once again, I'm not law enforcement. Sure. So, but the um, I know that the proliferation of the web has helped us on, you know, both um, good and bad aspects of it. Um, that being said, um, we've been able to, for lack of a better term, weaponize, you know, technology within DHS to utilize it for the awareness aspect, getting the materials out. Yeah. And, you know, that part to me has been the most beneficial because there's people who are now talking to you about it in the most random, random spots. I, I got to um, meet um, just randomly just discussing with them. Oh, what do you do? I say, well, I work for the Blue Campaign. And I was like, oh, we heard you on Pandora Radio. And like mm-hmm. kind of felt like a mini celebrity there for a moment, <laughs> you know. And but it was but it was one of those things where you kind of get the chance to talk. And I don't think we would have had that opportunity without the the, the technological advances we've seen. You know, I was wondering, throughout the conversation, um, I understand you're not law enforcement, no background there, but you've mentioned anecdotal evidence or mm-hmm. anecdotal um, you know, narratives, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, is there any entity that you're working with or is there any vision of creating an entity that kind of collects best practices on how to address, you know, either identifying human trafficking, a potential victim, or ways to combat it more effectively? So. There is a, the Human uh, Smuggling and Trafficking Center, um, and I know that we also have uh, Homeland Security Investigations, which is run out of ICE, and the, the, those groups right there, they are like they do the yeoman's work. Yeah. You know, um, th- these are these are uh, such dedicated servants who are, are trying their best to make the world a little bit of a better place when it comes to this type of crime. And um, they have, I think, they have some exciting leadership down there now, and uh, we're, it's. Um, it's we're going to try our best to kind of work with them as well to help raise the awareness and and make people aware of how how much work that they're doing and to just the collaboration that we have specifically with HSI and with you know ICE and you know the the feedback that we get from them and the way that we're kind of able to be the tip of the spear has I think been very beneficial. What can individual citizens do to combat human trafficking? We will ask Mick McEwen, executive director of the DHS Blue Campaign, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all center reports at businessofgovernment.org. How is the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, getting back to basic? What are EPA strategic priorities? And how is EPA changing the way it does business? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and more with Henry Darwin, Assistant Deputy Administrator and Chief of Operations at EPA. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. This is the Center This Week 
highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center this week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. Federal agencies and academics have long discussed the importance of cross-agency collaboration. But recent changes in law and advances in technology have led to a new environment that makes cross-agency management far more achievable. The GPRA Modernization Act of 2010 requires the development of government-wide priority goals and greater coordination among agencies. But requiring is different than doing. What two dimensions are necessary for effective collaboration? And how can agency leaders and OMB foster cross-agency collaboration as a way of doing business? Today, we'll explore these questions and so much more with Dr. Jane Fountain, author of the IBM Center Report, Implementing Cross-Agency Collaboration, a Guide for Federal Managers. Dr. Fountain has been an astute observer of cross-boundary relationships in a wide range of policy areas over the past two decades. Uh, Jane, your report outlines two types of recommendations, those directed at policymakers and those directed to help managers and agencies engage in implementing cross-cutting collaborative initiatives. I'd like to explore those recommendations. Would you identify and briefly describe the recommendations you offer to the Office of Management and Budget? Okay. This report makes five recommendations to the Office of Management and Budget. First, OMB can be very helpful by developing management guidance for cross-agency collaboration. And this is guidance that agencies could use to begin to understand the process, to begin to capture an existing body of knowledge that has grown up among many different projects and that can be brought together. In this regard, OMB could produce templates for shared budgets, for example. Uh, Now, I don't mean just one template because there might be different models, variation that needs to be captured. So by producing a sort of toolkit, management guidance for agencies, we could start to share some of the accumulated experience that has been developed over the years. The second recommendation to OMB is that OMB officials should continue to play two different types of roles, facilitator and enforcer. During the Bush administration, there were a number of cross-agency projects that were uh, more modest in some ways than the CapGold projects. OMB surprisingly began to play a role as a facilitator in many of these collaborations by disseminating promising practices, by disseminating innovations, by bringing parties together. But there were times when OMB played its maybe more stereotypical role as an enforcer by moving a group beyond some impasse and forcing parties, frankly, to do things that they otherwise might not have done without that enforcement role. The third recommendation is for political appointees at OMB and in the agencies to continue to engage with key members of Congress and congressional staff because this implementation of the GIPRA Modernization Act is going to require continued deliberation and continued discussion between OMB and uh, the Congress. The fourth recommendation to OMB is uh, that they continue to search for ways to build once, use many, 
This is a term that Mark Foreman, the first CIO of the federal government, used. And what it means is to identify systems and infrastructure and processes that have already been developed in some agency and to see how they might be used in multiple and different implementations. So one quick example, some of the code, some of the software and systems developed for electronic rulemaking have been in the last year or so modified to help develop the new Freedom of Information Act online system, specifically the way that that system will track FOIA requests and their status as they move through agencies. So this reuse can save a great deal of money as well as time. And then the fifth recommendation is that OMB work with the Office of Personnel Management and with agencies to start um, building uh, cross-agency skills and skill sets into performance evaluation for the senior executive service. If we're serious about government executives being able to work across agencies, they need to be selected, measured, evaluated, perhaps promoted on the basis of how well they can do that. Jane, for executives who are assigned to build a major cross-agency effort, how can they do it successfully and what recommendations do you offer in this area? Well, here we're these recommendations really recap a lot of what is in the the body of the report. What should cross-agency leaders do? First, set and communicate clear, compelling direction and goals. It's, It's not enough to state these at the outset. They need to be continually restated throughout these projects and throughout these efforts to keep people focused on goals. Second, fit the structure of the working group to the task. There is not a one-size-fits-all solution here. Different divisions of labor, different types of procedures and task environments are better suited to some problems than others. And so some attention to that that set of systems and procedures is important. Cross-agency leaders should establish clear roles and responsibilities. People have to know who will do what, who's responsible for what parts of the project. They should develop formal agreements. Now, it's important not to try to jump to codification right away. There needs to be a period of deliberation, of uh, the parties getting to know one another, of discussing what it is they're going to do and how they're going to do it. But at some point, those agreements really need to be formalized. And there should be enough flexibility in the agreement that they can revisit those documents and make changes when they're needed. Um, Another recommendation is to develop these shared operations and shared resources. Uh, So it's not enough to have interpersonal skills. You have to have capacity building skills, system building skills, um, especially if you're working broadly across agencies. And then finally, We have to have performance metrics that can reach across agencies. So cross-agency collaboration projects will have a set of metrics that will go with them so that you can track and monitor and measure uh, output and outcomes. 
So, Jane, what prompted your research in this area, and could you tell us more about how you conducted your research for the report, and who participated and why? Well, this report, it actually draws on, on many years of interviewing managers in, uh, from uh, the very top of the government to mid-level managers working on how do we develop this shared bit of code so that our software will work across agencies. I interviewed managers and over several years have observed at fairly close range a number of cross-agency projects. Some of these projects began during the Clinton administration with the reinventing government effort, and they've morphed, they've changed and modified and refined over time and over successive administrations. I want to say that I, I really admire and I have a deep respect for the civil servants and the government managers and executives who've been forging a path really to a new information age government. In some cases, I met these people through executive programs that I've taught in. In others, I learned of their innovations and sought them out. In other cases, they sought me out for guidance. So a lot of the the collection of information here drew on a wide range of studies, but also on sort of firsthand observations and discussions with the people who are actually building this this new modernization of government. Jane, I'd like to know a little bit more about you. Could you tell us about yourself and your areas of interest? Oh, gosh. Well, I'm primarily interested in how organizations and institutions, primarily in in the government, in the United States, but in in many other parts of the world, uh, how those organizations are designed and how they're structured to solve the very complex problems that public policy uh, brings to governments. So what I have tried to do throughout my career, it is to join bodies of knowledge that are not joined up as much as I think they should be. There's a wealth of management knowledge on organizational change, on innovative organizations that is largely in the business sector. And I've tried to join that up with politics, the very real politics of working where power differentials are real and the very uh, real world of policy analysis where complex, intractical problems require people of goodwill to dedicate their lives to try to solve them. So that's pretty much what motivates me and what I try to bring together in my research. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Nick McEwen, Executive Director of the DHS Blue Campaign. My co-host today from IBM is Don Fenhagen. So, Mick, we've talked a lot about your collaboration within the components of DHS and with the state and local governments and probably with other federal agencies Mm -hmm. in general. But what's your role and how do you work with international uh, partners, in particular other national governments, to really combat the global scourge of of human trafficking? So we have a great opportunity to uh, brief other 
you know, foreign delegations when they come to the United States. We've done some great work. We've explained our work to uh, Thailand and to Cuba and uh, to uh, Belgium. And then we've also really had a great collaboration with the Royal Mounted Police in Canada. And they have a a Grand Prix event up there that is uh, like their equivalent, I guess, of what the Super Bowl is for us. And we've been able to share with them best practices. Um, This month I'll probably be up there um, to to kind of do a bigger, larger conversation with them at, at a conference in human trafficking in Toronto. So, I mean, we've been able to really work well with them. Uh, with As far as um, the Mexican government, we've been able to kind of share some of the things that we're doing with them. And both of those governments in particular are stepping up their efforts. And we're really being, being glad to kind of help be the, uh, the the standard bearer for what it is that you should be doing in this field. Are there any, like, international partnership associations or forums or things like that around human trafficking that maybe you folks are getting involved with? Yeah, so, so uh, you know, the UN has a couple of UN. different, yeah, has a couple of different uh, initiatives. And um, I think one of them is called the Blue Heart, you know, f- following through on the on the, on the the Blue. And um, that, that kind of has like an international focus, especially on these smaller countries, uh, that uh, Jamaica and, and mm-hmm. some of the other, you know, uh, those other countries. And I think that's kind of where they've been, you know, focusing in on. And they've, we've had done some work, mm-hmm. um, but it's very... Uh, for lack of a better term, seasonal. Yeah, sure. So, it, you know, it, 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 I think that um, once we have, uh, you know, a little bit uh, of a sturdier footing down here at DHS, we'll see us being focusing more up there as well. So, you, you, Mick, you've done a wonderful job explaining the indicators that folks need to look out for. But, you know, I'd like you to walk us through this. Um, what can individuals do to combat human trafficking? How can they make a difference? And more importantly, and I noticed this on your website, what shouldn't the individual citizen do if they have that gut instinct? Don't be a hero. Just don't be a hero. You know, um, you're not trained. You're not law enforcement. Call law enforcement. And I think you have to first realize, what are you calling? Are you calling a tip that your neighbors, the the abandoned house all of a sudden has 50 people in it and something doesn't feel right? Or are you seeing something that is 911? You know, and I think that's kind of one of the the big things um, that we have to kind of differentiate from. And, uh, Going back to what we said earlier, if you see something, say something, right? And, you know, uh, I think we have to kind of get out of the mindset that sometimes making the call is the better better decision to make. And I think that's really where we have to work our way towards. Because right now, when we raise awareness, you know, this is what we're raising awareness on, you know, this is why we're doing it. Now, how do you handle it? Is you just make the phone call, you know, and just say, hey, like, I don't I don't know exactly what I'm seeing. But something's not right here and put that tip into the into the system. And you can do that through, you know, nine one one or through the you know the ICE hotline and you know, going through it that way. And, and would you make a plug for your website? So because there are resources on uh, Oh absolutely. So yeah, so it's uh, www.dhs.gov slash blue campaign and we're also uh, at DHS Blue Campaign on Twitter and or on Blue Campaign on Facebook. And I think now more than ever it's you know, especially state and local law enforcement, they're all strapped and busy. Um, you know, if you do report something, I think it's really important to, to keep following up if you don't see a, a change and, you know, don't lay up. I mean, do you, what do you think about that? I, I absolutely. One of the things that I, we are seeing in law enforcement is these consortiums coming together of all these small towns outside these big cities and these smaller municipalities working together as one to form human trafficking units and just to kind of, kind of raise awareness that way. So you don't necessarily might not need a, a, an officer dedicated to the, to the crime in your community, but know that there's one in the surrounding area as well. So switching gears a little but can you tell us a little bit more about the Homeland Security Advisor uh, Advisory Council, the HSAC, and kind of what's its mission and 
is there anything you'd like to share about work being done uh, with them and yourself? Well, so the um, the council is is a is it's the secretary's advisory council. So it's it, the whole purpose of the council is to um, help with questions, you know, and tasking. So it's kind of like, you know, hey, this is an issue. How do these leaders and the HX comprised of leaders from the policymakers, um, academics, uh, leaders in the private sector, and they, they can take a different perspective than, you know, government officials would onto an issue because the government knows how to help work with the government, sure. but how are, we, how are we helping our stakeholders? And we also do have members, former members of DHS on there who are from leadership positions. So they're really adept to be able to see what's helpful from the DHS perspective and also to kind of represent like both sides of the aisle. Do you have a role in the council? Yeah, so I'm the executive director of the council. Oh, really? I have a really cool title. I'm the executive director of the That's Homeland great. Security Advisory Council and Campaign Office. Oh. So, yeah, it's it's a mouthful, um, but it's it's fun. And the uh, we also do I do the if you see something say something campaign, oh. and we have a. A cyber smart campaign that's coming out soon. That's going to you know also raise awareness on on cyber issues. But yeah, so one of the things that we deal with the council and one of the what, what makes it so unique is that when you're dealing with these different issues, you, you, the, the membership of the council is just it's just preeminent people within the yeah i mean like you know it's 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 uh, to me it's just so when you're talking about cops like you know you have commissioner bratton on there and then you have judge webster who used to head the fbi then the cia was a federal judge and now he's taking time to do this i mean there's just so many great you know uh, people on this council who um have had such you know senior level roles and understand the complexities you're just talking to a whole other level and it's it's pretty intimidating you know to to kind of be sitting there like next to a former federal judge and being like, excuse me, sir, like I'm not finished yet. <laughs> you know, it's been a, a fascinating um, opportunity. And yeah, it's a great segue into my next and final question okay. is um, what advice, Mick, would you give someone who is thinking about a career in public service? So for me, I think the most important thing in public service is to bloom where you're planted. Mm-hmm. If you get the opportunity to go somewhere, take it. Don't be waiting and waiting and waiting for your chance. Just if you're, if for some reason you get the opportunity to be in the procurement department, be so good they cannot ignore you. Mm-hmm. Talent will rise to the top. It will be identified, and someone will take you. I think the best example of this I can do is Caitlin Seal, who's in uh, the Blue Campaign Program Manager. She was a budget officer, and she was identified by another member of this office, and they were just like, no, she understands programs. She understands how to get the job done, and she just brings such a level of dedication that she came in here. And, I mean, she didn't know too much about human trafficking when she got it. But, I mean, she is, you know, one of those people who just makes things happen. I think if you do that, if you bloom where you're planet and just do the best you can be, it's absolutely the way to go, especially when you're starting early in your career. Mm-hmm. And one of the other things I really want to point out, too, is that when you decide to join public service, whether you're, you know, early career, mid-career, or late career, you're starting over. You know, you're starting over. You have to prove yourself all over again. No one really cares what you did in 1978, you know, where you worked, you know, who you know. That doesn't matter. It's going to be where you, what you can do for us today and what product are you bringing to the table. Well, you know, thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedule. But more importantly, Don and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Oh, thank you so much. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Mick McEwen, Executive Director of the DHS Blue Campaign. My co-host today from IBM has been Don Fenhagen. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org.
There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How is the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, getting back to basic? What are EPA strategic priorities? And how is EPA changing the way it does business? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and more with Henry Darwin, Assistant Deputy Administrator and Chief of Operations at EPA. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.